Hello, everybody. Welcome uh, to a episode of Single Minded Conversations, starting a little bit late because of tech difficulties. This could be my incompetence with iPhones, but I um, I find I'll sometimes open the app and it just doesn't work. Like the fields don't fill in, and then it turns out I need an update, but nothing notified me that I need an update. So um, either I'm an idiot or Colin should update that. Anyway, welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. Uh, I'm an author and podcaster. My main gig is a show called Blocked and Reported with uh, Katie Herzog. Check us out at blockedandreported.org. I also have a substack, jessysingle.substack.com. Um, so yeah, today I, j- I just wanted to talk a little bit about the latest Gawker news. Oh, I see my friend Oliver uh, is in the audience I should bring him up. Oliver, if you want to talk, including about your new uh, Sam Harris thing that I forgot to send you a congratulatory email about, get in the queue, and I'll bump you to the front, but no pressure if you're just here to uh, observe. Um, yeah, this Gawker thing yesterday was pretty special. Uh, you know, new Gawker is... I guess the first thing we should say about new Gawker is it's just bizarre how it looks. If you go to gawker.com, I'm not the first person to have pointed out these um, graphic design issues, but they seem to have just launch the site with these issues that may make it look like a 1996 GeoCities page and then just been like, okay, we're just going to go with that. Like the, the main images don't have borders the right way. They uh, obscure the name of the website itself. If you just go to like the gawker.com and click on this, whatever the fuck this lead article is about, you'll see what I mean. Um, it's just, I don't, I don't understand the strategy here. I don't know why it looks the way it did. Anyway, yesterday uh, they published a piece about this uh, film screening of Alex's War, this new documentary about Alex Jones. Um, I've watched it via screener. (coughs) Sorry, I'm a little bit sick today. I'm all over the place. Uh, I watched it via screener. I think there's an embargo anyway. I might have thoughts on it down the road. But the point is there was this event. Glenn Greenwald did a conversation with the uh, director, Alex Lee Moyers, I think is the name, and – Alex Jones was there too. So it resuscitated all the normal conversations about quote unquote platforming, how we should treat a documentary about Alex Jones that, um, it's not, it's not a hit piece. It's somewhat sympathetic. I think people are going to over-exaggerate how sympathetic it was. It's a little bit complicated. I'll talk to it when it's talk about when it's time. Anyway, Gawker publishes an article that says Thomas Chatterton Williams is there. This is one of the guys they love to bash. He's, you know, sort of, center left writer harper's letter type and uh, thomas chatterton williams he points out that he was in fact not there uh he says i was not at this event what the hell are you guys doing uh quickly they post a editor's note saying our bad we had a bad tip thomas chatterton williams was not there but they leave up the rest of it and i don't know if that was people said that was weird i think there's i remember hearing that one of the ways libel law works is you need to be careful if you get something wrong with how you take it down or how you edit it because sometimes if you just pull it down right away or edit it in a certain way that can be used against you i don't think that was the case here but it was also just weird how long they kept it up with this editor's note that undermined the whole piece at the top anyway uh, i should say if anyone has, has questions or comments about this or anything feel free to get in the queue uh we don't need to just talk about this so they eventually take down the whole piece. It's just like, whoops, uh, this piece was by Tarpley Hit, who's like a young staff writer there. I've had run-ins with her. I think she does the typical shitty Gawker stuff. So this was a very embarrassing moment for Gawker. Gawker's many enemies were celebrating. Uh, I think it's interesting to think about how Gawker would cover this Gawker controversy because 
my experiences with Gawker are that, especially in its later years, across all its different properties, there is this very cruel knee-jerk sanctimony to the site. And there is very little mercy, very little forgiveness. I think if they covered this, it would just be doing everything they could to inflict maximum reputational damage on Tarpley Hit. And I don't think that's a good way to... I know I'm grandstanding a little bit, but I, I think I live by this. Like, I don't think people should be defined by their worst mistakes. I, I think if someone screws up, it's fine to point at them and laugh, but you should move on. And I just think Gawker has been, um, including the relaunched one, has just been... After in its early years, it did some important stuff as sort of a, an anti-authoritarian voice, but now it's just sort of, I guess, a hall monitor. Uh, I mean, the whole point of this piece was, ha ha, look at Thomas Chatterton Williams. He's at this Alex Jones event, which right off the bat doesn't really make sense because I, I could see myself going to an event about Alex Jones. I mean, um, anyway, I'll, I'll, I've got more to say, but let's just take Charlie's call. Charlie, what is up? Charlie, you got to unmute yourself. Charlie, I'll bump. Oh, there we go. Hey, uh, you had it, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, great. Can you hear me? I can. Yes. Welcome. Okay, great. Um, yeah, just, just this. Um, hey, we're getting some kind of really rough scratchiness with your mic. Is it? Um, if there's right, let me just pull it out. Let me just. Right, is this better? No, just uh, talk quietly and, and get to the question quickly. Sorry, just a weird scratchiness. Sorry, just a weird scratchiness. Yeah, I pulled out the mic, so I'm just using the laptop mic now. Um, oh, whatever. Um, this hey, Charlie, just, I, 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 Charlie, I feel bad. There's just um, a very like loud scratchiness when you were talking. If you can uh, try to get that addressed. Man, technical difficulties today. D, what is up? Can you hear me? I can. There we go. How's yeah, going? yeah. I thought I thought the pushback that that uh, if we're talking about the documentary, the pushback that I think that Glenn got was just because. It's. I think it's it, a lot of these pushbacks are just a consistent theme where I think both the center and also the um, sort of I, I don't even know what to call Glenn, but like his faction of the left, they're they're constantly engaging with people like that with with little pushback, and I think it would his defense would be more um, believable in terms of like if he would do that with someone who was on the um, sort of uh, liberal left, like he would never do a puff piece with Rachel Maddow, so it's like. Racial matter, we can all disagree, is more respectable than, like, um, Alex Jones, and yet it's always like, oh, yeah, well, we have to hear what Alex Jones has to say, and it's a consistent... Yeah, matter. so this this was another subplot I wanted to talk about. Someone posted uh, what is supposedly a transcript of Glenn Greenwald questioning... Uh, Alex Jones on stage at this event. If this is the full and complete transcript, I I think Glenn did a really bad job because if you're going to interview someone like Alex Jones, uh, for that to be a worthwhile thing to do, in my view, you need to push him on all the shit he's done. And he might be one of those figures that is so far past that and has been lying for so many years that there might not be anything you can get out of it. It's also complicated because... He now basically has to admit that, that he was, as he put it, wrong about Sandy Hook. Everyone knows he lied about Sandy Hook just the way he lied about a million things, but this, he got caught and he got in legal trouble. So it's like you're, you're interviewing a liar about stuff he's lied about, but he legally has to pretend to have gotten something wrong. I, I think you're not going to get very far in that interview um, Unless you push back on him, and I thought Glenn was much too credulous, was, and I thought Glenn, you, yep, you have to watch the video, it, dude. It was not just softball; it was t-ball. Because even with the like 
January 6th, the election was stolen. He didn't do the full, like, oh, were you, like, just, like, the voting machines? He did basically, he's like, well, maybe, Alex, you were talking about the fact that the media has been so unfair to Trump and disempowered Trump supporters that, you know, you, you, uh, you know, that's what you meant. It was just, like, disgraceful there stuff. Was, th- like, yeah, there was one time. That's what him, that's yeah. what him and, like, Batya love doing. They love, like, giving softballs to, like, the, the, the far right. They don't even, it's not even, they don't even challenge them. It's like, we're just going to get, you said this blatantly racist thing. Here's what you probably really meant. <laughs> it's like. Yeah. I um I gotta watch the video because I might write about this because I, I the the other way I yeah. think it would be worthwhile to interview him is if you really got into his like production techniques and how he gets worked up for those rants he does and what he uses to get his um there'd be a way to get him to explain a lot about his technique that would be I think potentially revealing because this is someone who has like I don't know two three million people just enthralled to him who he sells supplements to and. He's probably ruined a few lives from folks who have fallen into deep conspiracy rabbit holes because of him. So I think there's a way to do that where probably some idiots on Twitter would yell at you for like enabling him. But it wouldn't be enabling because you'd actually be trying to understand the craft of what he does in the same way it would be interview interesting to interview like um, Al-Qaeda used to have a glossy magazine. It would be interesting to interview the editor of that. How do you actually get people to try to join Al-Qaeda? I'm not making a direct comparison. Anyway, i got to watch the Glenn Greenwald video, but it sounds like yeah. you're saying the little transcript snippet I heard. If, okay. I, yeah, I, I know you're not fans of him, but if you go to um, – I, I, well, I don't think you're a fan. If you go to like the Sam Cedar channel, they have like the 50-minute um, majority report. They have like the 50-minute um, like ex, uh, video on like everything. It's like really bad. Thanks okay. for taking my call though. Thanks, Steve. I'll check that out. Uh, Jamile, what's up? Hey Jesse. Hey man, I remember Al Qaeda's uh, glossy magazine. That's yeah, what's it called? Sick. Like Inspire or something? Let me see. Al Qaeda magazine. Yeah, I I just remember it had um way better graphics than the new Gawker. <laughs> Inspire. Here we go. Wikipedia. Inspire is an English language magazine reported to be published by the organization Al Qaeda in the Arabian Arabian Peninsula. It's an Al Qaeda offshoot. It's a very. I think Gawker should hire whoever does the graphic design for Inspire. They could probably use more work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing hasn't been around in a while. Yeah. Um, I will, I haven't heard this thing with Alex Jones. I'm for me, Alex Jones is in that category of people I just ignore because they're crazy. But it's interesting to hear you talk about how he might have sort of a craft behind what he does and how there might be more of a purpose to it than just, you know, the lady by the bus stop near my house who says crazy things. Yeah. How, how do you think you can tell the difference? Yeah. Here's my question. How do you tell the difference between someone whose job is to look crazy and someone who's just crazy? Yeah. I I think Alex Jones is a performer and uh, I think he's actually a fairly brilliant performer and that, can explain his success. Now, I think it's unlikely that Alex Jones like has a Google document somewhere. It's like how to con people. I think there's almost something a little bit Trumpy in him where just from years of experience, like performing, he's figured out what works. And the uh, documentary does have some interesting stuff about how he muscled his way onto Austin public TV and quickly developed a pretty big following. So I think that he is too, highly functional like to be i just don't think he believes this stuff i think he does um it's almost a version of cold reading like when someone says they can they can contact your dead relatives and there's a subtle way they can throw out 10 claims and then one of them 
just by random will be right, and that's the one you notice. So I'm borrowing this a little bit from a YouTube critique of Jones I watched part of, and I've always wanted to go back and watch the rest of it. I can't remember who it was, but this is what he does. If you watch him, he's just claim after claim after claim, the Illuminati, the lizard people, the UN, the CIA, and especially because there's a small area where he does interface with reality in that the CIA has done horrible stuff and there have been a few actual global conspiracies. There's always just enough there for him to point to like stuff that's sort of realish, but then he sort of distorts or funhouse mirrors it. So if you could get him talking honestly about um, why he thinks he's been successful, which I think is something he would love to talk about, and maybe someone's already done this, I think you could learn something useful. Again, if you did that, people would accuse you of doing a softball interview. That's not a softball interview because you're actually trying to understand how this pernicious uh, figure gained so much influence. But it doesn't sound like Glenn Greenwald did anything like that. Well, then I'll leave you with this and let you take Mark's question. It's whenever I think of like really talented psychics or cold readers, I always say, boy, that's a weird way to channel your natural talents. It's kind of sad you didn't channel them another way and become a great actor. So maybe with Alex Jones, it's like it's sad he didn't channel his talents another way and become like a real journalist instead of a fake one. Yeah, anyway, I don't think he has the chops to be a real journalist because to be a real journalist, you need he's he's a pathological liar. And as a that'll nip your career in the bud real quick. Uh, but yes, I agree. It would be good if these people used their skills for a more uh, socially beneficial purpose. But I think often they're like pretty, you know, if your skill set is to scare people and to bring them closer to you and to make them feel afraid and, and like the whole world is against them. Uh, oh, then they shouldn't have said journalist. They should have said it's sad he didn't become like Rumsfeld or some other. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, let's take Mark. The queue's empty after that if anyone wants to uh, jump in. What's up, Mark? Hey, Jesse. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Um, so I saw Chris Rock the other night at Barclays, and it, he made some jokes that I thought were kind of interesting. I'm curious to know what your thoughts on them are. He basically, um, you know, the audience just for reference was pretty much, you know, Barclays Stadium, mostly full of, you know, black people from Brooklyn, a couple of progressive people from there you could kind of tell. But I think what was the most interesting is he made some jokes about um, white people in his neighborhood putting up Black Lives Matter signs. And he said something along the lines of, it's like they're afraid of Black Passover. They're afraid <laughs> of Black Pharaoh coming along to kill their firstborn son. Oh my God, right? that's awesome. And then he goes on and makes some other jokes about Lululemon putting up these signs saying that they're against racism, sexism, etc. And he then makes some jokes about how he doesn't care about what Lululemon, Lululemon cares about politics. He just wants them to sell yoga pants. He says they sell yoga pants for $100. They hate someone, probably the poor. Um... It kind of got me thinking, if he's making jokes that kind of mirror what Coleman Hughes said in 2020, like bat for bat, like word for word, comments he was making, guys like him were making, in 2022, in front of an audience in Brooklyn, mostly all black people in Brooklyn, in a stadium of them, and getting him to laugh a lot. Um, I was thinking, and I'm kind of feeling this for the past couple of months, I know you've kind of touched it to some extent, is wokeness pretty much dead as like a national phenomenon? It kind of makes me think that after the show, I was kind of thinking that it almost kind of feels like um, a lot of, I guess, writers who are now focusing on it as something to pay attention to, guys like let's see, Andrew Sullivan or Barry Weiss, it kind of feels like they're almost like if Sam Harris kept on banging out about atheism right around the time of Christopher Hitchens died, at that point, new atheism had kind of won its battle. And it strikes me that if Chris Rock is doing these jokes that other people got 
basically saying making joke versions of comments that people got criticized for two years before to huge applause. We've kind of moved past this national, I guess, issue that so many people in media were focused on. I'm curious to know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I guess it, it just gets down to, um, to me, the differences between interesting and uninteresting ways to write about this stuff. I uh, this idea that wokeness is like some like virus that has just taken over everything has never really been the case. To me, what is interesting is how certain norms and practices and beliefs have changed in liberal institutions, and that in in the last five, six, seven years, and how we got to a point where you know the supposedly progressive pro-social justice position is being you know echoed echoed and broadcast by like the CIA uh just this very stunted language about DEI stuff um so it doesn't surprise me that that a Chris Rock audience would find that stuff uh funny because the white progressives would recognize it in themselves because you have these signs living in front of buildings poor people or refugees could never ever afford to live in in a million years and then I would imagine, I'm, of course, I'm naturally the guy to speak for, for black Brooklynites, so take it for a grain of salt, with a grain of salt. I would imagine um, if you're a black Chris Rock audience member, you're probably familiar with a certain brand of like performative, good, white, liberal ally. And this is a type who people have been making fun of forever. There's an absolutely classic um, old SNL clip. Let me, Eddie Murray... Um, not Murray Murphy, Eddie Murphy Art Gallery, SNL. Uh, everyone should pull up Tyrone Green's art opening. This is an SNL clip from, I think, the 80s. And all it is is like the, this um, well-heeled group of white progressives in an art gallery. And the art gallery is for Tyrone Green, who is like a black radical who just says everything that they get – frankly like sexually aroused hearing black people say about like fighting the system and he's a petty street thief and they love all this shit so there's like a a, a type of white person who i think has a it's like i don't know if it's benevolent racism but it's a very dysfunctional uh relationship to black people that i think is not connected to like knowing that many of them i think that's the sort of person who often puts up these signs and there's a huge class divide here, as you're saying. Like, it's just it, it just has to do with like the mores that prevail in wealthy white liberal institutions. I think that's really interesting to talk about, and I am drawn to it in part because, like, in certain ways, I've been affected by it because it, there's a little bit of, in my sense, a moral panic going on uh, in white wealthy liberal institutions. I ended up rambling a little there in part because I just want to rewatch this clip. Does that make sense? Or am I answering the question? Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know. I, I, I think I disagree, though. I think that. I, I just, I, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is it kind of seems to me as if these white, these mores, maybe it depends on the institution I'm in, but I'm in some institutions I think would, you know, people would think are hot or held hostages. I just kind of don't see the same fervor as they're used yeah. to. Be. And it strikes me as something that's kind of, yeah, just, just something that's kind of people know isn't really that, um, let's say, it doesn't make that much sense, and people know that it doesn't really – they don't really need to follow it as much anymore, pretend to follow it anymore. And I guess yeah. that's kind of what I'm getting. I, don't think, I, I yeah, think it varies. Cool. I think there's, there, there's some truth to that. I think it varies from institution to institution. Like in, it Clearly, in my opinion, things are getting better, and like major outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times have swung back toward like a bit of an 
open-minded conversation about some of the subjects that could get you like fired or unpersoned by your colleagues a couple years ago. But I think it's always been the case. Like I, I'll sometimes go to shows at the Comedy Cellar, and even during the peak of the reckoning, the kinds of jokes people would tell in the Comedy Cellar, comedians of, of basically like every race were incredibly offensive jokes that would get you canceled from Twitter because the average person has never really cared about these dumb new rules about what you are and aren't allowed to say. And political correctness does come in, in these big cycles. And the, I think it's always been true that the average person doesn't like this stuff. To me, that's why that's what makes it interesting is like in some cases, people literally getting fired from institutions or having their careers ruined for saying stuff that 90 to 95% of Americans would agree with. Like I, uh, a famous conductor was driven out of his industry because he criticized people for uh, lighting stuff on fire during a, a riot. Someone else from book publishing, similar deal. She called the cops after someone left a um, lit a gas station on fire, and she was basically – I don't know as much about her story, but basically drummed out of the industry. Like To me, that's really interesting and suggests a moral panic, but that doesn't mean the average American – or any more than 5 or 10% of them is like, yes, that is bad to call the cops when they light a gas station on fire, stuff like that. Cool. Uh, well, i got to get going. But, uh, thank thank you, you, Mark. Uh, let's do two more calls, and then I will have to get going myself. AA, what is up? All right, AA, get back in the queue, and I'll, um, I'll take you next. Spencer, what is up? Hey, hello? Hey, how's it going? Hey, good. <clears throat> um, kind of on, on the point about you know normal, average people – I mean, what what I see is it seems like the kind of the pathology of the new modern progressive is this like anxious sort of will to power, and I see that with like the masking, you know, like it's it's it it, it just seems like so ridiculous to see how it's like the most progressive people, and when I talk about tax policy or healthcare, just wanting to mandate masks or just basically saying like a mask forever, and there's something about living like wanting to live in that world that just seems so isolated from you know just almost everybody else yeah i mean i've always found the mask stuff tough because i i wore masks along with everyone else and i thought they were important i think that behavior i mean in brooklyn there's still a lot of people who do but a lot of people don't um so, so you're. I just want to make sure I understand your thesis. You're, what do you mean by the will to power thing? Like, like making like, it, like, stuff. Well, like, okay. For example, like I remember I was walking by um, a venue in San Francisco, and it was the performer was some very popular, like non-binary performer. So it was all Gen Z kids, right? I mean, I'm not kidding when I say like literally every single person who was probably in their mid twenties at latest was all wearing a mask outside. And it's like there, there's there's something about like anxiety, like there's something about, and you know they're not like I said they're not progressive in the way that you know a lot of us probably are. But this is like that whatever that next generation is, and it seems like anxiety and neuroticism are like a functional element. Maybe not like object, you know, expressed directly. It's always expressed with like public care or compassion. But it was just so strange to me because you're literally seeing a group of people who are the least likely to be affected by COVID, but all wearing a mask yeah. as almost like a ritual. And then I'd actually, my buddy works at the venue and he made the interesting comment that the performer, even though the mask mandate had ended in San Francisco, the performer had requested that everyone wear a mask, which I thought was very, like there was something there. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it's anxiety or I'm, I've been trying to like figure out what is it at the core of Why is it that I could probably predict that if there's a popular non-binary performer 
I guarantee you a majority of people are wearing masks. Like, what, what, what is that connection? I think, it, you know, it's just young Young people of that generation are more likely to have really strong views on masking, and then there's like social dynamics that make you feel pressured to do it because all your friends are. Uh, I, I, to the anxiety and neuroticism thing, I, I try not to stereotype, but like there's something to that with like the sorts of people who, I mean, I've, I have, luckily I haven't encountered a lot of them in real life. They really can't handle like disagreement the idea that someone would disagree with them they sort of freak out or if you like ask them to defend their position and i've heard a couple stories like people in journalism spaces where you would expect to encounter people prepared to defend their positions just like sort of melting down a little like if you if you just question them at all um but we should say you're talking about a very specific subculture. You're talking about Gen Zers in the most progressive city in the country seeing a progressive comedian. But I've definitely noticed some of those dynamics. I just it's hard to know how widespread they are or what like the direction of causality is and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying they're widespread, but I'm saying like there's something. I mean, there was like a, um, those staffers that are um, protesting uh, Schumer, right? Like they're all really young activists, like. What, what is it about, like, I'm not saying it's like at all. I'm not even saying it's representative of, of maybe even, like, liberalism or progressivism, but I'm saying the most activist people are, are always wearing masks. And there's, like, something there. I mean, I don't know if it's, like, a, like what, what, what is that connection? It's a very odd thing that, like, if you are, like, a really radical progressive activist, you're most likely wearing a mask. Yeah, but I just think this is true of, like, any political tribe. I mean, I always go back yeah. to... um. Uh, Dan Kahan is this Yale research. I think he's like actually started as a legal scholar, but he's done interesting stuff about how a lot of what we say we believe or a lot of the ways we act are much more about like just our social group and what's con- uh, considered acceptable within the social group than like our deeply held beliefs. So you could have a group of people who actually, if you could somehow separate out the part of their brain that's like, I mean, not that this is possible, but that separates out the social part from the sort of rational part. Um, you know, they don't, they're probably not actually deep down that worried about getting infected. They're just in a group where this is very important and other tribes have other similar behaviors that are contagious and then, you know, catch on. But, um, yeah, I'm with you. There's something about the anxiety thing there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's very funny to see because it's like, it's become a thing. It's almost like the, it, that whole thing of like, it's like the MAGA hat, but for the left where it kind of feels that way, where it's just like. It's what I'm saying. Like, do you think that it's, it's that divorced from from anything other than, like, if, for example, for whatever reason, uh, you know, wearing a hat, you know, was the, the policy, you know, was like what masking was a couple of years ago? Do you think that people, you know, all the same people will just be wearing hats? I think a lot of this stuff is more random than we think it is. And so I saw someone post. Um, there could easily be a parallel universe in which conservatives got really into masking and closing borders and shutdowns and liberals made, you know, empathetic care-based arguments about how this stuff will hurt migrants and how it'll hurt low-wage workers to shut down businesses. So I think a lot of this stuff is more random than we'd like to admit. And I should also say, like, one of the most popular theories about differences between liberals and conservatives is conservatives are more afraid of, like, infection and disease. And um, that clearly was not the case here, which to me at least lightly suggests some fundamental randomness. I mean, abortion's another example where it's just like, if you look at the history of how abortion caught on as an issue for some Christian groups, it's not really 
they it's just sort of contingent weird social things that happen and political things that happen there's not much of a there there and you could sort of see a situation in which like the libertarian impulse among conservatives won out and they were more pro-choice as some libertarians are and liberal so a lot of the stuff is random and that's why i think it's useful to understand the um the social stuff anyway that is a good question and i appreciate the call thank you very much i'm bumping aa back to the front because he had uh they had mic troubles hello can you hear me hey, can you hear me yeah, there we go. Hi, the, uh, the Glenn thing reminds me of one of my favorite pieces of political writing of all time, which is uh, I Can Tolerate Anything Except the Outgroup by uh, Scott Alexander. Alexander. Yeah, I highly recommend yeah. everyone read that. It's one of the best ever. And he talks about, you know, when uh, Thatcher died, you know, tons of his liberal friends were sort of in the streets sort of cheering, saying this is so great. Um, but when Osama bin Laden was killed, they're saying, you know, you should, you should never uh, celebrate someone's death. It's so horrible. And he drew attention to the fact that, you know, there's a lot to do with where people draw their tribal lines, exactly who they are uh, sympathetic towards and who they don't really care about. And I feel like um, this happens to basically everyone. I think Glenn is in a space where Alice Jones is, is Osama bin Laden and not Thatcher, right? If he was interviewing a CIA person, he probably would not do the same thing or some you know, person he has contempt for. But Alice Jones is like just a type of bad that he doesn't really have the same kind of tribal concern about. Does that make sense? Well, I think that, yeah, I do. And I think in the clip I saw, I think he just referenced the fact that mainstream media, in his view, lies a lot. So if in yeah. a weird way, I, I mean, I've made this argument in terms of Trump where like I think it's bizarre to be like, to overlook Trump's lies because the media sometimes lies. It's like, yeah, there's degrees to these sort of things. So like, it could both be true that mainstream media sometimes lies. I think it's more often incompetence or as Glenn would argue that like Rachel Maddow seriously over blue Russia gate or whatever we're calling it. Those can be true. And it can be true that Alex Jones is just like a fucking liar and constantly lies. Not only does he lie, he separates like old scared people from their cash, which is like pretty morally bad behavior. So I'm, I think you're completely right, and I think this this does dovetail nicely with the previous call, where it's like you draw these weird, fuzzy tribal connections, where it's like, oh, Alex Jones, he's against the mainstream media. I don't like the mainstream media, therefore I don't necessarily not like Alex Jones, but I'm not going to push back against him because he's like fundamentally on my side in some way. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, if it was, it's like you know someone maybe doing a softball interview with like Osama bin Laden saying, you know, what about American imperialism? It's like, well. We can agree on that. But I'm sure Glenn would say, I think uh, Alex Jones is pretty horrible, but I wanted to sort of probe him. But I don't, yeah, like you said, I don't think it's any way that he would do, if he was interviewing Thatcher, who I assume he hates, I don't think he would do the same kind of interview style at all. Yeah, I think there's, because people, there's some very dumb views about quote unquote platforming that prevail in progressive spaces right now. I mean, you saw literally to the point of people criticizing Bernie Sanders for going on Joe Rogan. Just, radical views on this stuff that are are dumb because of that that might give glenn or someone like glenn an open to be like oh so you're saying we shouldn't platform alex we should uh, we should cancel this film we should not let a venue host of it and and host it that stuff's true but when you do hold the event and you're actually on stage with alex jones i think there's some real questions about how to handle it and i i need to now watch or listen to the whole thing but um i'm with you i think he uh i think it sounds like he softballed it yeah, I think that uh, what we're seeing now is a lot of 
like you said, tribal lines are being drawn and not even explicitly drawn. I'm sure that, you know, Glenn would say, you know, I'm on the left and that's my tribe. But I think often people's real tribe is something different from what they say. Like often people, I think a lot of people now are anti-establishment tribe. And, you know, that's even to have a particular political leaning, that's really the thing. Like, for instance, I'm reminded of how James Lindsay recently, I remember, not recently, it was a while ago, but I remember him talking about how he's making friends with all these sort of uh, fundamentalist Christian people. And it was kind of strange because he used to be, his atheism was his tribe, but now it's, you know, anti-woke is his tribe. But I think I mean, I think you're hitting it exactly. A lot of this is just like weird social networks and like who your friends are and who's nice to you. And I think that often wins out over sort of good faith ideological concerns. Yeah, but I don't think it's even a matter of faith. I just people just sort of feel something like there's something something in a, a someone's mind that makes them hate Thatcher and not care about some Osama bin Laden. I think that's, that's the same thing. It's true there. Yeah, I know. I mean, we see this all the time. I, look, there's a there's a discourse. Uh, I don't even want to – it gets so annoying. But someone mentioned – if you go to my feed, you'll find it. Like Tom Skoka calling The Atlantic a far-right authoritarian magazine. And there's just this thing of like, really? Like that? that's who you're – and there's an obsessive focus on that, on Barry Weiss, on Thomas Chatterton Williams, on, to a lesser extent sometimes on me a little bit. And it's just like – you can't have it both ways. You can't claim like we're in the midst of a fascist takeover and, and all this terrifying stuff going on. Some of which is true. Some of the election stuff I do find terrifying and then be like, okay, therefore we need to go after Liz Brunick. And it's all, it's all just tribal stuff. Some of this goes back to beefs. Jude Doyle just wrote a, a hit piece on Liz Brunick. That's because Jude Doyle was mad at Liz Brunick in 2016 over Bernie Sanders. That's all there is there. It's all just like, the beefs are often not much more substantive than like what you get if you interviewed rival tables in the middle school cafeteria. That's all there is to a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I mostly agree. I want to uh, sort of quote a little bit from the article, which I think is really good. I think everyone should read. Um, he mentions how a lot of people are claimed to be criticizing their tribe. Like a lot of liberals will say, you know, I hate white people, but not saying they hate themselves. They're saying they hate the other white people. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, I think a lot of people are saying, you know, I'm talking across aisles to other people, you know, with different ideologies. Um, but I think, you know, when you sort of search your feelings, it's like, is that really true? These people, I think, are often not talking across. They're talking to someone who's on the same aisle of, of a different uh, disagreement that they have. Um, and if, if so someone's really criticizing their own side, it's going to, I think in the article he says, it makes me sort of like sweat blood. It makes me want to sort of kill myself. It's just so like, it's painful to do. And if it's not painful, they're probably not talking across what is the most salient tribe to them. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I, I think Alex's yeah. piece is from, um, or Scott's piece is from uh, like 2014. I think these days people wouldn't even say they try to talk to people across the aisle. Cause like, Oh, why would you talk to fascists? You're not even supposed to engage with them. Well, Glenn would say that. I think Glenn would say, we need to Oh, Glenn would say, yeah, sorry. I was, I was to give the, um, uh, hating the out group article. Well, yeah, but I think it's all connected. But yeah, I think Glenn would probably say, I'm talking to, you know, people of different, like Tucker Carlson. But Tucker Carlson is, in a way, not his outgroup. Yes, I'm yeah. Saying. There's not a lot of meaningful, yes. No, I totally agree with that. I think I'm... He disagrees in, with Tucker on most things, but it's not his outgroup. No, on the most important thing, which is, like, hatred of mainstream media, uh, they actually agree. Uh, yeah. Anyway, p these are very good I'll, points. I'll, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll leave you that. Thank you. Um, all right, guys. I gotta I gotta leave it at that myself. Thank you so much for listening. This was a really good conversation. Went off in a couple 
directions I didn't expect, but welcomed. Uh, I would just say, as always, if you enjoy what I'm doing here, please tell other people about the show or, and or point people to jessysingle.substack.com. That's my Substack, or blockerreporter.org, which is the podcast. Thank you, and I hope you have a uh, good Wednesday. Bye.